All right. Well, if you have a Bible, why don't you open them up? We are going to be in Luke 2 today. Luke 2, verses 22, and we're going to be going all the way down to verse 35. If you do not have a Bible and you would like one, our fantastic Frontlines team is coming around with Bibles. You can raise your hand and take one. And as we say, if you do not own a Bible and you would like one, we would love for you to take this Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. One of the great blessings that we have as a church uh, is ordering Bibles because people keep taking them. And so we will keep ordering them and providing people with God's word. We believe that God speaks through the Bible, through the word to us. And so it's deeply meaningful and important to us. So Luke 2, we are starting our Christmas series in this Advent season. And so here we are in Luke 2, verses 22 down to verse 35. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, I did not mention it. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors and leaders of our church community, and it is amazing to be together. I was not with you last week. I was at the Denver Broncos Buffalo Bills uh, football game in Buffalo with my dad. We had a great time, and so it was awesome to be there. And then this week, I was actually away in Vancouver uh, meeting with some other pastors across Canada talking about what would it look like for us to collaborate together to plant churches across our nation to see the many people in our nation that do not know and love Jesus. Jesus come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so that was an amazing time to be away and really just a very, it was an encouraging time for me to be with other like-minded pastors thinking about the same things about our nation. But it is good to be together today and we are starting our Advent series. Now some of you are like, what's Advent? Now, you don't say Advent when it comes to an Advent calendar. And some of you have gone out and in the grocery stores, they have advent calendars. They have, um, obviously, uh, you can get Lindor ones. Uh, Our kids like the Lego ones, although they're a bit pricey. So grandpa and grandma pitched in some money to help us with those ones. Uh, But we have these advent calendars, and we know what an advent calendar is, right? There's like, there's 25 days leading us up to Christmas. And so we're excited about advent. But what is advent in general? Have you ever stopped to ask the question, what is advent? And we have our advent calendar. 
candles here for us. But what is Advent? Here's what the dictionary definition of Advent is for those of us that might be confused. It is this. It's the arrival of a notable person or thing. It's the arrival of a notable person or thing. Now, for our culture, they're thinking Santa Claus, right? For us as Christians, as believers, we celebrate the arrival and the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now, we are going to be talking about Jesus a lot over Advent. If you are part of Church of the City, you know we talk about Jesus a lot already. But in this season, we are going to be talking about Jesus a lot. And the reason that we do that is because in this season of Advent, four weeks leading up to Christmas, Christians across the world for centuries have been anticipating the arrival of Jesus and also looking forward to his second coming when Jesus promises that he will come back to this earth to rescue and renew all of creation. And so in Advent, we look forward to that time. And there's four themes traditionally with Advent. They are hope. And so this is our Sunday of hope. There is peace, which will be next Sunday. There is love. And then there is joy. And so we are going to be leaning into more of a liturgical understanding of Advent. It's why we have our candles, this first one being hope. As we usually do, however, let's take a moment to quiet ourselves, to consider how we are feeling emotionally. Maybe you would at this point invite Jesus to meet you uh, in your emotions, and then we'll continue this morning looking at the theme of hope. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together as a church family, that we can think deeply about what this season of the year means and what it points towards, which is your coming uh, a second time to this earth. I pray that we would have hope today, that we would learn today what biblical hope is all about, and that in this season of the hustle and bustle, God, that we would live counterculturally, understanding what our true hope is. It's not in a present that we receive on Christmas Day. It's not in hope that our circumstances will change. It's in a person. And so we sit before you today, you with us, and we thank you. In your name, amen. Well, last year, the Bible Project, in collaboration with the Advent season, made four uh, separate videos about each of the themes of Advent. And so we are going to watch right now the first one on hope to introduce the topic So let's today. say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. 
The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the apostle Paul says, the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of glory. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is, but biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. So in summary, biblical hope is not optimism for the future, it's hope in a person. So with that in mind, let's go. Luke 2, verse 22 to 35. Luke 2, verses 22 to 35. Now a little bit of context to this passage. Prior, we have the story of the shepherds and angels, okay? So for those of us that might be wondering, where are we at in the story? In both Matthew, in the Matthew account and the Luke account, you can read the narrative of Jesus' birth. Here in Luke, we're jumping in right after that, after the shepherds and angels. 
angels have come to see Jesus. This is when that next story happens. Jesus has been named, and now the next story in Luke 2 is the story that we're going to be looking at today. So Luke 2, verses 22 to 35. And so let's pick up in verse 32. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, couple of things. The focus of this text, these couple of verses, is clearly on introducing us to Jesus and to his parents, to Mary and Joseph, right? That shouldn't be confusing to us. The text is, in, is introducing us to Jesus and to Mary and Joseph, and they make a trip and they go to Jerusalem. Now you might say, well, why did they need to do that? It instructs us here why they needed to do that according to the law of Moses. Now let's go together to Leviticus 12, verses 1 to 4. You can, you can stay there in Luke 2, but jump back if you'd like to Leviticus 12 verses 1 to 4 because it's time has come for the purification and it's 40 days after Jesus's birth and once again this is according to the law of Moses so what does the law of Moses say that's found in Leviticus 12 1 to 4 and then we're going to jump forward to 6 to 8 the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the people of Israel saying if a woman conceives and bears a male child then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Jump down to verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law of her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb... Then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now we could go into like a whole sermon on the Levitical law and a bit of the details of all these things. Here's the two bits of summary or the points that we need to find if we go back to our Luke text. What is Luke communicating to us about Jesus and particularly about his parents? Number one, Mary and Joseph, they are observant Jews following the law of Moses. Mary and Joseph are observant Jews following the law of Moses, the law of the Lord that was given to Moses and Moses brought to the people. This is really important for us to understand. We're being introduced to the environment. What was the environment that Jesus was brought up in as a child? What's the environment? What were his parents like? His parents were observant Jews. Jesus was a Jew. We can't miss that. Matthew 1, verses 1 to 18. While there are Gentile women mentioned, it's very clearly indicating for us that Jesus is a Jewish man, a Jewish person. And here we have the environment that Jesus is born into is born into a family of Mary and Joseph who care deeply about their faith, who honor Yahweh, and are observant Jews following the way and the teachings of the law of Moses. Okay, so that's number one. They're faithful, they love Yahweh, and they're following the law. As inconvenient as following the law of the Lord was in those days. 
They followed the Lord. They trusted Yahweh. They hoped in his promise. But then the second thing that we're being told in Luke 2 is that Mary and Joseph are poor. If you notice there in the Luke uh, or in the Leviticus passage, it says, if you can't afford a lamb, you can do two pigeons or two turtle doves. I wonder if that two turtle doves is really where the home alone thing finds its root, right? The turtle doves. They, were, they wouldn't have enough money. They couldn't afford a lamb. So as a result, they were to bring two pigeons or two turtle doves for the sacrifice. So here's the environment Jesus is born into. Parents who are religiously observant, they care about Yahweh, and they're poor. Jesus came amongst the vulnerable and the poor of society. It's a, it's a point that we make other times when we go to study the scene in which Jesus is born, but it's important also to note the kind of sacrifice that his parents were going to bring. They didn't have the financial means to bring a lamb, but they had the financial means to buy pigeons or turtle doves for their sacrifice. So Mary and Joseph are observant Jews following the law of the Lord. Mary and Joseph are poor. This is the introduction we're given in the first part of this text. Let's go to verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So you see what, what the, our, our writer Luke has done here? He's introduced us. There's Jesus and his parents. Now he's switching gears and he's going, here's Simeon. Now we're told three things specifically about Simeon. Number one, Simeon is righteous and devout. He as well is someone who's committed to the law of Moses and he loves Yahweh. He lives rightly with God. He's devout. He cares deeply about his faith. Okay, isn't it interesting? We have the parents and we have Simeon. Both care deeply about the law of the Lord, committing themselves to Yahweh. So he's righteous and devout. Secondly, we're told, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now you might say, well, what in the world is the consolation of Israel? This is what the consolation of Israel is. It's the consolation or the comfort of Israel is the hope that God would come to rescue and comfort his people. It's the hope from the prophecies, the messianic prophecies, that God would actually come to rescue and to comfort his people. I have a few uh, verses from the Old Testament I want to put on the screen for us from Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 13. For the Lord, this is similar language, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 51, verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Isaiah 57, verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. So Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort that God would come to rescue his people. Now you might ask the question, well, why does Simeon and why do they actually need to be comforted? What do they need to be rescued from? And this goes back into the history of the Old Testament. And if we study the history and the text, we understand that the Jewish people have been subject and citizens to the rule and reign of other kingdoms since 721 B.C., and then 701 B.C. in Judah. They were first under the rule of the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, which included various makeups of leadership, and now they're under the rule of the Romans. 
Additionally, at the close of the Old Testament and the time when we are introduced to Simeon, roughly 400 years have passed. A time in which God would seem completely absent to the Jewish people. And so here we have Simeon, who's waiting for the prophecies that have been heard of old, roughly 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, and he's holding out hope that God would actually renew and rescue his people. This is Simeon. He's righteous and devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. But then thirdly, notice what we're told about him. The Holy Spirit is upon him. Now, the writer Luke, Luke wrote both Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. And if you've read Luke and Acts, you know that Luke has a high emphasis on the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what Luke is focusing on here about Simeon is Simeon is anointed with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon him. We read additionally in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So not only is the Holy Spirit indwelling within him, he and the Holy Spirit have a relationship and the Holy Spirit has communicated to him, whether through verbal words or whether through a sense in his spirit, a conviction of his heart, that he is not going to die until he sees this Messiah that had been promised years and years ago. So think about this man that we're being introduced to. He's not just some simple character named Simeon. He's righteous and devout. He's waiting for the comfort of God to rescue his people. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And he has been promised by the Holy Spirit. He's convicted to his core that I am not going to taste death until I meet the Messiah. Like imagine living with that reality. That is Simeon. Anticipation, if you can feel the anticipation of the text, that's good. We should be feeling some anticipation, okay? We have Jesus and his parents, they're traveling to Jerusalem. It's not like they're just going down the tree street. They travel or to Jerusalem. We're then now introduced to a man in Jerusalem who's righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit's upon him. He's not gonna die until he sees the Lord's Christ. Do you see what Luke is doing here, right? He's, he's, he's brought two introductions. Now he's about to weave the story together for us. So verse 27 And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. So here's our two focuses, our two introductions. The two stories are now completely weaving together. And so here we have Simeon who's under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. This might have been a nudge, it might have been a sense, it might have been a word. We are not told the how, only that he knew he was in this moment supposed to go to the temple. You kind of have to wonder, is he, is he, is, does he know what's about to happen? Mary, did you know? Uh, Simeon, did you know? Like you know that song, right? Does he know? Does he know that he's going, he's going to meet the Lord's Christ? This is the stories weaving together. This would have taken place, if uh, some of us maybe know what the temple and the complex looked like, this would have been in the temple complex, not in the inner temple sanctuary. Again, anticipation is building. What happens next? Verse 28. We're not told how they get introduced to each other. The story just continues. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, 
Israel. So what do we see here? Well, our two stories now become one story. Our two stories, our two introductions now become one story. Simeon sees Mary, Joseph, this baby. The Spirit has let him know this is the Lord's Christ. Simeon takes the child, and what does he do? He blesses God. And look at the details of what he says. Number one, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What is he saying? Lord, I am your servant, and you have kept your word to me and your people, Israel. I can now die in peace because of whom I have met. This is likely, if we were to apply this, the sort of peace that a person who has met Jesus has on their deathbed. The presence of Jesus absolutely changes everything. You know, there is, there is quite a different way that we can grieve when we know somebody has met Jesus, when they have understood salvation, that as they lie on their deathbed, what they realize is that this is not my end, but just the beginning. And here we have Simeon standing. He had the promise that the Holy Spirit made to him. You will not taste death until you see the Lord's Christ. He's seen the Lord's Christ. And how does he start? Lord, I can die and I'm in peace that I can die because you have fulfilled your promise to me and I see the Christ. He goes on. What a powerful line. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Notice here, there is no question in Simeon's mind about who he's meeting here for the first time. It's not like, oh, neat baby. This is the Messiah, 40 days old. My eyes have seen your salvation. The Spirit of God is illuminating his understanding of who Jesus is, and this is the object of Simeon's hope, Jesus, the Christ, Messiah. It's the same sort of illumination that the Spirit does in your heart and in my heart when we come to see and understand who Jesus is. My eyes, I've seen your salvation. Some of us in this room can attest to the day, maybe to the minute or to the hour, when the Holy Spirit illuminated for us who Jesus is. When we suddenly, Jesus wasn't just this historical figure that we've studied or kind of known about, but now Jesus is alive and he's bringing us to life, and we're like, "Woo! you're amazing. You know, like you're getting excited. You see it. He's illuminated. My eyes have seen your salvation. This is Simeon in this moment. This is Jesus. This is Christ. This is the Messiah, and my eyes have seen your salvation. Praise God. Bless God. He then says, whom you've prepared in the presence of all the people, What's he alluding to here? Well, Jesus has come for both Israel and for the Gentiles. This is significant. He says, Jesus, this Messiah, has come a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This means that they've, he's come and they're going to discover who God is and who Jesus is and that there's a way of salvation for them, to, for the Gentiles that they can also be saved now. It's not just the Jewish audience. You know in Jesus' life and ministry in which Jesus was uh, keeping company with those that he was supposedly not supposed to spend time with and the same of the life in Paul and the rest of the New Testament. Suddenly now there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. This is what Simeon is already speaking to, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be saved through this Jesus. And then he says, and for the glory of your people Israel. 
What does he mean by this? The glory of your people Israel. Well, it's a people who already possess God's revelation and are the people through whom Jesus, the Savior, has come. So Jesus has come from the line of David, from the Jewish history, Jewish person, and now they need to see that this Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ. We pray for people in the Jewish community that they would come to know who this Jesus is, that the Messiah has indeed come. Look at the response of his parents, all right? Remind us, right? Like sometimes those of us who are accustomed, we've heard the scriptures, we're kind of like, oh, you know, that's a nice little response. Look at their response. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They're in amazement. They're likely pondering their own story of Jesus' birth and the ongoing affirmation of the miracle and the mystery to who this child actually is. Right? Think about their lives. They're, they're just walking in humble obedience. Last year, last uh, Christmas season, we studied each of the narrative stories around Christmas. We looked at Mary and Joseph and the steps of faith that they are walking in. And they're here again, another experience where Simeon, this man, has approached them. He's got this nudge from the Holy Spirit. He's not going to die until he sees the Christ. And he sees them in the temple complex, comes over and says, whoa, holds the baby and bam. Like, they're just, Wow. The affirmation constantly with who this child is, is amazing. And so here is Simeon, a third-party person, meeting you in the temple as you're carrying out your purification ceremonies, testifying to the identity and the significance of your child. Like, amazing, right? They're just, they're marveled. Wow. Simeon continues. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, in brackets, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. The tone has changed a little bit about this Jesus. In addition to the blessing of who Jesus is, Simeon also communicates the division that Jesus' life and his ministry will bring and the illuminating reality of his life and his work. What is he saying? Well, he's also saying, Mary, you're going to be affected. Your soul is going to be pierced, which is prophesying to Jesus' crucifixion. But he's also saying many will oppose him, and as a result... The hearts of people are going to be exposed through this child's life and ministry. In summary, what is he saying? Jesus is going to pierce and he's going to expose hearts. And you and I know this. And Simeon's testifying to it. Jesus is going to expose people's hearts. Now what are we talking about? The the physical heart that we have? Like He's going to cut it open and go, see we saw it. No, what are we talking about when we talk about heart? A few weeks ago, I used what Dallas Willard talks about when he talks about the heart. The human heart, will, or spirit is the executive center of a human life. The heart is where decisions and choices are made for the whole person. That is its function. So Jesus is going to expose our executive center. He's going to expose the place of our lives where our decisions are made, where our ambitions are are taken over. All of these things, he's going to expose that. Well, what also is found in a person's heart? What you will find in a person's heart is a person's hope. 
So not only is Jesus going to expose our hearts, Jesus is going to pierce and expose the objects of our hope. It was introduced for us in the video today that we watched that hope in the Bible is about a person, whereas hope in our culture is often about optimism, right? And generally in relation to the future. And as I sat this week and last week in this text, I had to ask the question of myself that if Jesus is exposing my heart, then Jesus is exposing the objects of my hope. And I had to then ask the question of the Holy Spirit was leading me, nudging me in this way to say, what are the things that I place my hope in? What are the objects of my hope? Here are some of the things that the Spirit exposed to me. My circumstances. Particularly my circumstances for the future, right? I have hope because I believe that my circumstances, the circumstances of my life will change. Once I get out of this stage of my life, things might be a little bit better than they are today. But what is that? That's optimism for my future. But my circumstances are the reason for my hope. You know, things will be a lot easier once my kids are out of this like five and three-year-old phase. You know, once I'm a little bit further along in my career, then things will be a little bit better. My circumstances, as long as my circumstances will change, they better change in the future, that is my hope. I need different circumstances, therefore I have hope for the future. Other things was just general hope about my future. Well, things have to get better than they are today. So in a year from now, you know, things will be better in a year from now. You know, we've, we've gone through a lot as a church community this year. So the future has to be better than this year has been. I mean, 2020, bring it on. Right? But what's that? That's, again, optimism for the future. It's not hope in a person. It's optimism for my future. Finances. You know, I think a lot of us fall into this, where it becomes the object of our hope. Everything will be fine once I have, I'm making this much money. Or once this thing is paid off. Or, you know, once, once this debt is gone, then everything, finances, yeah, it's, it's going to be fine. And so my finances is where I place my hope. They're going to fix my future. They're going to basically give me my mental and emotional health in the future. Because as long as that is going to be figured out, my finances, I'll be fine. So finance is where we place our hope. Or how about material possessions and stuff? You know, I struggled uh, a number of years ago with the Monday blues. Um, in, in a pastoral work, uh, some would say that preaching a sermon is like eight hours worth of emotional energy. And so my Monday blues were, you know what, on Monday, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy something. Even if it was groceries, it was like, I bought something and I can feel better now. Or it'd be like a little trinket or something. And I began to notice this pattern in my life of I think that the object of my hope are these possessions that I'm acquiring on Mondays. And why am I doing that? Because of the emotional investment on Sunday. Whoa! So my hope is not in the, the risen Savior and Lord that I serve on a day-to-day basis and what he, is, what he is doing inside of my life and my heart. My hope in my, is in my possessions. And at this time of year, my goodness, is that exposed where we make wish lists and we're like, you know, this would be a fun gift to receive or here's something I'd like to, to give to somebody else. And like, then our kids are getting all caught up in it. And very quickly, the objects of our hope at this time of year is like to push Jesus aside completely and to take on the material stuff and the possessions. That's where our hope is. Or how about the vacation? I know for me, that can be an object of hope. You know, when I get some time off work, then... Things will be good. There's my hope. Andre and I are uh, 
we'll be married 10 years this coming May, and so we, we made the decision that we're going to go to Israel in, uh, in May together. So I can look ahead and be like, you know what, I just need to make it till May. That's where my hope lies. If I can make it till May, everything's going to be fine. Or lastly, where all of these things ultimately, though, find their core is in self. And the source of my hope is in what I can do for me. And I think that's the reason many of us live with this reality of stress and feeling overworked and anxious. is because for us, we are the center of our hope. And what I can do for me in the future... But you know what? That doesn't work. And so what's the alternative? And, and this is where Advent reminds us, Christ reminds us, our daily reality of, of living with Jesus reminds us, what's the alternative? I want us to go to Luke 23, verses 44 to 47. This is Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, verses 44 to 47. You know, Jesus came as our Savior and as our King, but he also came as our example. We read this of Jesus on the cross, the final words of Jesus prior to his death on the cross. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, it's a crying out of where is his hope? His father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit my future. Whatever it is, it's yours. Look at the response to Jesus. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now there was a centurion. Now when a centurion saw what had taken place, this Gentile pagan Roman centurion, when a centurion saw what had taken place, look what he does. He praised God. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I can almost hear in the background Simeon's words, my eyes have seen your salvation. And here is the centurion being part of the scene and the narrative of what has happened. And here he sees Jesus nailed to the cross, Jesus committing himself into the hands of his father, the abandonment of his father that he is feeling, yet his circumstances are not defining how he's feeling. His hope is in his father. And the centurion sees him, sees the innocence of Jesus on the cross. And praises God. So what this means for those of us, and what this means for those of us who follow Christ and for this world, is that Christ crucified is our hope. Christ crucified is our hope. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 and then 22 to 25 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know what this means? Is that if you were to take the average Guelph person outside of our city to a cross with a bleeding, broken, middle-aged Jewish man hanging on and saying, that is the source of my hope, how will they respond? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who have been called, it's the power of God. And he, on the cross, is the object of our hope. But then what we also have is his resurrection, as his resurrection secures both our present and our future, regardless of our circumstances. Romans 8, verses 10 to 11, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We come to life. We're not dead. We come to life through the Spirit inside of us, given to us by God through Jesus' resurrection. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is in us, bringing life to our bodies. And how about 1 Peter 1, 3-5? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, both the present reality and our future assurance. In James 5, 78, 7 to 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. If you could hear anything about hope, be patient. Christ is coming. Be patient. Christ is coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Praise God. And so in this, in the season of Advent, this first week of hope, we look forward to the coming of the Lord. So what's the alternative? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the consolation of Israel is the center, the source, and he is the object of our hope. And that we would daily live in response to this reality like Simeon who said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to be gathered as your people. We thank you for the true object and source of our hope, Christ crucified and risen. And we look forward, we live with hope, looking forward to your second coming. And so I pray this morning that no matter where we are, no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether that be influenced by finances or relationships or possessions or whatever it might be, that we would have assurance and that we would live in peace because we have seen Jesus. 
And so I pray for anybody here this morning that has never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, never seen the great beauty of Jesus. May you, Holy Spirit, remove the veil that is from their eyes and that they this morning would be able to attest, like others of us in this room, that we have seen your salvation. And we pray for those of us that are here who have maybe are lapsed believers or you or I, we, we are not truly seeing the beauty that is you. May you please Please, Holy Spirit, allow us to see your beauty so that we too can praise God and say, my eyes have seen your salvation. And because my eyes have seen your salvation, it changes everything. May you expose our hearts. May you expose the objects of our hope. We rest completely in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.